everyone, this is Josh Kaler. Welcome to the Grace House Podcast. Just wanted to take a moment and do a little intro, mainly because the audio is pretty rough on this episode. We recorded it with a phone. We didn't have our normal recording equipment as we all gathered together. And so you hear a lot of background noise. You hear everybody, basically. Even though we cut out the conversations just to maintain the intimacy of the group, you do hear a lot. But we thought the content was worth it. And if you make it to the end, if you make it through it, I hope you're blessed. All right. Bye. Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Making our way through the book of Ephesians in Stockton. So we're on the theme of spiritual warfare, and we're looking at the armor. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for myself, David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. The Lord, our righteousness. Now there's a story a pastor tells about going to a purity conference. If you haven't been to a purity conference before, and at least the ones I grew up going to, you're really missing out. You're missing out on a, a, signing a contract and getting a little gold necklace to wear a vessel for honor or if you're a woman a gardening clothes certificate but at this particular purity seminar the youth pastor wanted to make a point about the holiness of god and our commitment to him and following in that holiness and so he took a rose freshly cut beautiful long stemmed red petals and he 
And I want you to pass this around. I want you to smell it. I want you to see how beautiful this thing is. And as it was passed around in the hands of hundreds, the leaves got pulled off. The petals, as it was passed around, began to fall off. The stem broke. And so as to drive his point home, he asked for the rose back. And as it was given back to him, the rose was a shabby thing in its former glory. It was broken, it was wilted, it was destroyed, it wasn't beautiful anymore. And to drive his point home, he said, who would want something like this? Who would want something like this? Do you think God would want something like this? Something broken, something deflowered, something not pure, something, something less than it was meant to be. The pastor telling the story said that he had his friend there who was coming to church for the first time who had a sexual history. And you could see the weight of the world just sinking on her shoulders, just crushing her. She's at the end of herself. She's going to try Jesus. She's going to see if he's the answer. She hears that he has nothing for her because she's not good enough because she has a history, she has a past, because she's dominated by guilt and shame. And we know in the gospel that the answer to that pastor's question of who wants something like this is to yell out at the top of your lungs, Jesus does. That's exactly who he has come for. He hasn't come for the well, but he's come for the sick as the great physician of our souls. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. Guilt is feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. Shame is an interesting thing because shame can actually happen at our own hand. It can be our own doing. We could participate in something foolishly that we stand back and look at and we go, I can't believe I ever did something like that. I can't believe I participated in this. I can't believe that this is a part of my story. But shame can also be what's done to us. We can experience tremendous shame because of abuse, because of damage that other people have done, that we feel the damage that's been done by other people is irreparable that it is something that's a baggage that we're going to have to carry with us and that it's something that weighs us down and it's something that makes us less than. So we're talking about spiritual warfare and we're talking about the armor specifically. And we're talking today about the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Little recap. Paul says at the end of his letter, we're in a battle. And he's not shifting gears in the sense that this is a whole new subject. He's saying all the environment of where you find God's infinite blessings that are already yours in Christ Jesus. Being seated with him in the heavenly places, your new identity that he's won for you. 
your security in him that before the foundation of the world, he chose you in him, right? And then it gave him pleasure to do that, that it pleased the Lord. And on, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who's rich in mercy, he made us alive together. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And that faith isn't even yours. It's the gift of God. And that he changes your life. He transforms you. God is not in the business of making good people better. He's in the business of making dead people alive. Amen. Yes. That's what our God does. He's not remodeling what he's making us new. New creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Paul says that, the, that this is taking place in the midst of a battle. A battle, but that this battle isn't against flesh and blood where we so often get our eyes on other people. It's this person, it's this political party, it's this president, it's this policy. God says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and power, and our wrestle isn't against the physical, it's against yes. the spiritual. Yeah. So often the church is trying to change the world through the world's yes. means. If we yes. just have the right person in place, if we repeal this law or get this one through, if we can get a government definition on marriage, mm -hmm. if we could give more of a handout to people or if we give less of a handout to people, then that's the answer. But God's way is different. He puts his spirit into the church and sends them out to demonstrate his love. First of all, between one another, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And in things like enemy love, that we're not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. That we, you know, this is hard to do. This is getting, this is going to take the rest of your life to, to get all the resources to be able to do this. But Matthew 25 says that we give somebody a drink of cold water in his name who's thirsty. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small. It seems like it doesn't impact. It seems like it's little, but the gates of hell can yeah. prevail against Amen. And it's through these ways of Jesus that he transforms the world that we're in. He puts a spirit in You see, the church is like a boat, and the world is like the water. The boat is made to be in the water, but water's not supposed to be in the boat. But we tend to either make a beautiful boat and keep it on the shore and give tours of our boat. We're like, this thing is so sailworthy. It's like the Titanic, but we never put it out to sea. It's unsinkable, but it's never in the water. And there's people drowning and they're crying out for rescue. But we're content to stay away. Or we go to the other extreme and we make a submarine and we're underwater. We're on the waters all around us and we cannot save drowning people either. But we're in a spiritual battle that he's called the church to, to follow Jesus in loving one another and loving people. That's the kind of spiritual battle we're in. And Satan wins when we engage in the conflict any other way. You remember Peter as they come to arrest Jesus and they say, are you Jesus? And Jesus is just showing his authority, right? He says, I am. And they all fall back, the soldiers. 
this dead man. But Peter pulls out his sword. He says, it's time. I've been waiting for this. I've sharpened my sword. And he starts swinging it. Jesus says, put away your sword. That's not, that's not our warfare. That's not where we engage. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're divine. They're mighty God to pulling out of strongholds. So we're in a battle. This battle is not against flesh and blood. Second Corinthians 4, let me quote it right. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We talked about the belt of truth, the foundation of the armor. It holds everything else together. And we saw that the enemy will try to either get us to doubt God's word or to neglect God's word. Mm. Mm. To doubt God's word or to neglect it. He's happy with both mm-hmm. outcomes. Because that is truly the foundation. We're going to talk about righteousness. Where are we getting this truth from? We're getting this from scripture. God's revelation to us that he has written his very breath to us. Right? That this scripture is God-breathed. Truth is objective. That means that there is actually an objective standard of truth. There is truly a creator. He made the world to function a certain way. Then there is an objective standard and an objective reality to existence. I don't know if you guys ever watched the show Greatest American Hero. Yeah. It was like the perfect show. <laughs> this guy who fall, it's got a suit that gave him superpowers. But from episode one, he lost the manual. As a kid, I was just so frustrated and anxious that he'd get the manual. Because he had these amazing, he could shrink. He, could, he was basically Superman, but didn't know how to be Superman. And, and so he flew, he crashed everywhere he flew. He did not know how to do He'd always do everything wrong because he didn't have that objective reality telling him, this is how it was designed and this is how you function. And so there is in the universe, built into the fabric of the DNA and the molecules and the atoms, an objective standard of reality that this is how lives function, this is how lives flourish, this is how lives grow. That when God says, this is the way you flourish, this is the way that in relationship, in relationships, that causes flourishing. And when we go against that, it leads to that breakdown. And we see that. We see that with people's truth. Wisdom is justified by your children is one of my favorite little biblical quotes. And it just means, you have your wisdom. Let's see how your kids turn out. Mm-hmm. You have your wisdom. I'll find out how good your wisdom is based on the fruit that it produces mm-hmm. is what that saying means. God as creator tells us how things work and how they flourish according to his design. We use then as the belt of truth knowing truth we use the objective truth subjectively we use it inwardly right we run up to the watchtower of the mind and we use the truth of what god says is truly true and what is truly real to shape our identity to shape our attitudes to shape our hope to shape our love to shape our future we have to say as we talk about truth that jesus is the truth Jesus is the truth. In fact, Paul says that earlier in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 20 to 21. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So we hear the story of the rose at the purity seminar, and we know because we know Jesus 
what the right theology is. Even though someone can use Bible verses to say, be holy as I am holy, God's not going to accept you because he's holy. We know the story of Jesus that he came as the Holy One to make us holy. And that the only holiness we can approach God in is Jesus' holiness and perfection that he won for us, not in our own, right? I think it's so important to remember that and to see Scripture through the lens of Jesus. It is to be our hermeneutic. It is to be our means of interpretation. Philip, on the night and night, said to Jesus, and his heart's full of worry. Jesus just told them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And Philip just says, I don't know if that's enough. And he said, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. That's what we need. That's the answer. And I love Jesus' response. Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the exact representation of the heart of God. He's the revelation of God. Jesus is the heart of God. So we don't have truth abstracted away from tone, attitude, how he draws near to the weak, how he fights against injustice when people are taking advantage of other people, like when he's turning temple tables over in his court. We know Jesus. So it's not just using Bible verses in an abstract way. The point is that he's the hero of the story in every way, shape, or form. You've got Paul who's talking to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 about being generous. And he doesn't just tell them, be generous, you fools. That's the right thing to do. He says, think about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was rich beyond all. All the wildest imagination. We love the story of the golden goose that, that lays golden eggs. So if we just had the golden goose or stories in that vein, the uncaused cause, the creator, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and end who can bring anything into existence. He's not just the father who has cattle on a thousand hills. He can create the hills and a billion more. Like he is rich. And it says, think about him. Think about the grace of our Lord Jesus who was rich, but for your sakes became poor. So that you might experience true riches. He says, meditate on that. Let the story of Jesus, who had everything and gave it all up so that you could have everything with him. Let that melt your heart until your heart generosity flows out. So it's not just abstract truth, but it is Jesus' truth. It's Jesus being the hero of every story. I love the Old Testament. I love it because he is the hero everywhere. When I read in Jeremiah 17 about the bush, you know, that is an evergreen. It doesn't wither. It doesn't fade because it's planted by the stream. I read it and I'm like, I want to be that. I want to be that, but so often I'm like the bramble on the tumbleweed <laughs> who doesn't have root and is blown about by every situation. That's more true to who I am. Like, the situation changes. I'm like, well, I'm this way. I'm flip-flopping like a fish out of the water. My faith is weak. 
what does this story say? It says, yeah, you were the bramble. <laughs> he said, but I planted you. By me being uprooted, being cast into the wilderness, he was crucified outside of the city water. He cried, I thirst. And he planted me in the water supply so I never have to thirst again. Jesus is the rescuer of every story in the Bible. He's the hero and he gets all the glory. He tells me the truth about who I am. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to fake. I don't have to front. I can be honest that, Lord, more often, I'm like that tumbleweed. This I know. That's who I came for. And he plants us by that stream of water. So the belt of truth holds everything else together. Jesus, the way, the truth, and life, not a truth, the truth itself. Right? The breastplate plate of righteousness. There stand verse 14 of chapter 6, standing therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate is a kind of a generic word. It's thorax, or where we get the word for thorax. It means just to cover from your waist up. All the vitals is the idea. So much in scripture, it's funny when we read about the heart. It's actually talking about the bowels. We just don't have a modern way that we would translate that in a uh, Yeah, it's when it says my heart churned within me, it's my bowels churned. We're just like, I don't want that as much. I like the heart. More I like on Valentine's Day, we give hearts. We don't give large intestines. It's a little more. But what's fascinating is it's talking about the seed of the emotions. It's talking about what we feel about things, what we feel about ourselves, which are powerful. Uh, how we perceive. The idea is to that, that seed of emotions, the way we're perceived and the way we feel intensely, the seed of our affection covered by the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is daikosune, and in a broad sense, it means the state of him who is as he ought to be, righteous, the condition acceptable to God. But it can also be translated integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking, feeling, or acting. And because I work full-time, beyond full-time sometimes, I'm constantly listening to other Bible teachers and what their take is on things. It's one of the ways I stay connected and redeem the time. And it's amazing the division on people who say, this is talking about the righteousness that we give to God, that it's more about integrity. It's more about, it's a really good Bible teachers, more about that. And I want to say that's good, important. Like we should be bearing fruit, right? Like fruit is helpful (laughs) to us, to our wives. Oh my goodness. Fruit is so helpful to our wives. If you want to do something for your wife, don't buy earrings or a necklace. <laughs> Probably some fruit of Jesus. Anyways, I don't know. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> it's important into what God's doing in his kingdom in this day and age that we might bear fruit, that he might get glory. Like That is such a, and I'm not playing that down at all. I just don't think that this is what he's talking about here because he's talking about standing in the evil day. He's already said, number one, stand and the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. That's how we stand, right? And so in the evil day, that's great, but I just, good luck on standing in the evil day with your righteousness. Yeah. (laughs) And so we say good luck with that. I want to read you a story. It's one of my favorites. It's one that changed me. Luke 18, verse 9 to 14. Verse 9. 
They also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So there's our theme right there. And treated others with contempt. Ah, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you have to understand at this time, people didn't hiss when they heard Pharisee. Like we do, we're like... You know, you know, we're but one a Pharisee, one the other a tax collector who would be like a Nazi sympathizer. Someone from would be like a Jewish person selling out his fellow Jews to the Nazis, telling them, "Oh yeah, they're hiding in here." So that's who you boo at. That's the villain of the story. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So first of all, you have to notice that he gives God credit. He says, God, it's you who did this in my life. That is so crazy to realize. He's not saying I did this all. He's saying, God, thank you for making me unlike other people. Okay, that's a little, that's a little, whoa. I never read that part. He said, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner or the sinner. Like I'm the only one in the room. I'm, no, I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. It's me and you, God. He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's our reward there for righteousness, that justification made right, put in right standing with God. And so you have a Pharisee who is like the hero of the day. He's the pastor and he's, God, you bless me so much. I'm so grateful that you've done this. You've given me this. You made me this way. But you can always tell whether somebody gets grace and somebody doesn't get grace is if there's pride then that person doesn't actually understand grace you could say grace not just at dinner you can use the words you can use the terminology we're really good at that in the church we get a buzzword and then it's a stamp onto everything I had a pastor friend who told me we were getting ready to go on a flight and he said the gospel I think is a fad and I was like I'm deeply offended, sir. (laughs) And to me, the gospel meant something so weighty because it changed my life. But I could see he was right. It got slapped on every book. It was gospel parenting, gospel business, gospel this, gospel driven. And then people move away from that to the next thing. It was this system. It's this thing. We get what's popular. And you can use the term grace, but if there's not a humility Mm -hmm. and a worship, Mm. in awe that says what Mm. if there's ever I said it once I told you guys the story when I was a youth this kid foul mouth just got saved and I walked out of there and said at least you got me God I am I am a compromise I'm literally like he knew (laughs) get out of my sight that is You read because I didn't get grace. And so here he is saying, God, he's using the lingo. God, you did this in me. But the root of pride hasn't been removed. And grace is an axe to our pride. It is the sword of the spirit to our ego. 
our self-righteousness, mm-hmm. it chops it down at the root. This grace, well, it's purely different. Sin creates a delusional field, and especially with pride and self-righteousness, but I don't know. We've heard it in our churches. We've heard it preached that here's what Jesus has done, but you go do your part in a sense. Instead of realizing that because of what Jesus has done, he enables me to do my part. Like, he, like it, it changes everything. And so there's this sense, there's this weight often that it's my integrity, it's my this, it's my that, that is going to win the day or recommending me to God. A crazy story about someone who thought he was righteous and was standing in his righteousness. And again, I come back to not a good place to serve. <laughs> good luck with that. Philippians chapter 3, this is what Paul says about standing in righteousness. And honestly, I don't think we had anybody in this room, no offense, who had it going on like Paul did or Saul. But finally, my brothers, verse, three, uh, verse 1, Rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the worship by Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Here's the key. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So he says, I need a righteousness that comes from without. I need a righteousness that doesn't come from me trying to obey the law, trying for me to be moral, trying for me to be good. I did that. And I did it blamelessly. He gets to the fifth commandment, commandment can tell not for heaven. No, it doesn't. Because that's the one that isn't outward, it's inward. And he said that destroyed me. But everything else, everybody would look at me and say, wow, you're amazing. We should walk write a biography about you. <laughs> you know? What a resume. What a resume. What a resume. And he says, Saul garbage. So Paul, he, he, he says, I need a righteousness that's not from me. Because Paul also, he would say, forgetting the things that are behind, but then he'd bring up his testimony and say, sometimes it's hard to forget because I was a persecutor of the church. Mm. Yeah. I think probably in that first century, people were a little skeptical. Paul, when he's coming in and preaching, they're like, mm, 
You killed an aunt of mine or an uncle. He had his hand in black. So here he was, a persecutor of the church, an enemy. And even Jesus, when he reaches him, he opens his eyes on the Damascus Road, falls to the ground, and says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. So identifying the body of Christ, the church, with himself. You're wounding me, Paul. It's my body. So Paul, he's like desperate for a righteousness that isn't his. He's not combining resumes. And uh, I want to do that. I like that. I like the hybrid. You got the electrical vehicle with the gas. I like the hybrid. Uses both. I want his righteousness for most of it. But I also want to give you something that I do. I want some credit. And Paul's saying, I need a righteousness that's totally from you. A righteousness that comes from God. So back to Ephesians. We're almost done. I've got one more story. One more section of scripture and we'll be wrapped up. And in Ephesians 4, we can often find out what Paul's talking about. It helps us as you study scripture. What does that word righteousness mean by seeing how he's used it already in his letter? Ephesians 4, verse 24. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying, he's using the same imagery of putting on, right? And he's saying, put on the Lord Jesus, put on Jesus. All through Ephesians, he's saying this, and he's saying that true righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus is one. You're putting on true righteousness, not a hybrid righteousness, not a 99% righteousness, but a true righteousness that is from Jesus himself. And so... We dig into the term righteousness a little more. It means the state of him as he ought to be, the condition acceptable to God, to be approved by him, to be straight or to pass inspection, to be and to live up to spec, to relational be right with someone, to have nothing in between, to be presentable. I have passed inspection in the eyes of significant other. I have been found pleasing in the eyes of someone I want to please. To stand before the one we long to be approved by and hear him say, I approve you, I love you, I accept you. Well done. That's what righteousness means. The righteousness that comes from out the imputed righteousness that we're to take up as a breastplate to cover our hearts or our bowels. Romantic comedies are interesting, right? They follow a very set pattern in the genre. It's two people have a meet cute, right? People who would never get along and they hit it off somehow and they fall in love, but then somebody has a deep, dark secret and that secret comes out and then it looks like they're gonna be apart and this thing isn't gonna work out. And then they show up creepily and they hold a sign out in front of the house or a boombox or they stop an airplane from taking off or a million other things. The whole Lifetime channel has literally made their money. Do you know they produce over 60 movies every Christmas that are all like romantic comedies? It's this time it's a nurse. This time it's a doctor. This time it's a one-armed nurse. It's like they do the same formula over and over and over. Why? It so hits us because that's our story. It's one thing to be approved by people we don't care whether they approve us or not. 
we all have this circle that we deem as important. And we're like, if they told me I was worth it, then my life would be full of meaning. If I, if they told me, and we're constantly, a lot of us are trying to get into that circle and trying to perform to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You're approved. You're loved. I see potential. I see this in you. It doesn't matter so often. The circle of our friends or the ones who could encourage us. Yeah, you just say that because you're my mom. But we long to have that. But as we grow in this relationship, we suspect we'll be found out. Maybe we've fudged the numbers. Maybe we haven't graduated from that place and I told them I did. Or maybe I'm not as smart as I come off. Maybe I'm going to be found out as the fake and the fraud. And then that which I long for, that which will make me whole, they're saying, hey, you belong in this circle. I'll lose it. And so we react to those stories, that, that formula, in such a powerful, fundamental way, because deep down we believe you can either be loved and not known, or not known and loved. Mm-hmm. See, if you're loved, then they can't know you who you really are. Think about your first date. If you ever went on a date with somebody, the number one thing you do is you hide all your flaws. You roll up, you borrow somebody else's car because you don't want to take the brown deal. Right? And you wear clothes you've never worn before. You put Old Spice on and that's only been on your heart. It's the scar. And you don't come out and you don't say, Oh yeah, I did this, I failed here, I got in trouble with the law at this point in my life, and this and this. How are you? Tell me about yourself. It's more you're ordering wine with a French accent. Like just doing a salad too. Yes, exactly. Oh, this is so good. You know? How do you feel about animals? You're asking them. Feeling them out. Are you a vegan? Yeah. And you're like, well, I like a medium rare. Or, oh, I like a vegan. And you're like, oh, yeah, real medium rare. Like, where we don't even know them. Don't put it on the eyes. And so there's this, there's this dance we go through in any relationship. And there's a fear. Unless you're Andrea, she's pretty, just here I am. But for me, I always would ask her, am I like a piece of gum to you? You're gonna chew me, it's flavorful, fun, but then you're gonna get tired of me and spit me out. You're gonna you're gonna see what my substance is or lack of it. So we can bring this into our relationship with God, man. You're born again, you're new, there's color in the universe, you hear the birds for the first time, you're thinking about creation and sunsets and sunrises, and you're just like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then you fail. You yell at your wife, you get upset at your kids. Where's the power? And so then you rededicate a previous rededication from a previous rededication. And you're like, start to try things. Like, oh, maybe it's, I didn't pray right. Maybe I'm not really saved. Need a reboot. Maybe I need this. Maybe I need that. Maybe what we do is we try to cover ourselves because we treat God the same way we treat people. If He sees me for who I really am, 
that he's going to say, ah, that's too far. That's too far for my grace to go. And nothing could be further from the truth. Zachary chapter 3, and I close. You see how important this point of righteousness is? As it's been said, when Satan talks to you about God, he lies the whole time. When Satan talks about you to God, he tells the truth. He says, Look at them, they failed! Chapter 2. This is awesome. I like, uh, I like this story a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is 75 years before Nehemiah built, rebuilds the wall. 50,000 Jews came back from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. The first thing that, you know, before they rebuild the walls is they say, we need the temple rebuilt, and they rebuild the temple, and they get to going. But the people get tired and discouraged and stop rebuilding the temple. It's so similar to Nehemiah. They're discouraged. It seems like the task is too great. Remember, it's always fun to start a project. It's always fun to end a project. It sucks in the middle of the project. You want to give up. You want to, it, it, we're not going anywhere. We're not making any progress. In fact, in the story of Nehemiah, I love it so much because there's all this conflict and they're in the middle of the project and there's all this warfare. And then there's one verse that says, oh, we completed the wall. 52 days. You're like, wait, what did just happen? Bam. And it can be like that so often. Uh, but so similar to Nehemiah, Haggai and Zechariah call the people to repent of their discouragement and call them to action. And in five years, the temple's finished, being rebuilt. As they talk about worshiping God again, the people of Israel are not the same people they were. They're very broken from being in captivity, disheartened. Most of their families stay in Babylon. It's only the smallest remnant of people who go back. Most of them get assimilated into that worldview. And into that context, they say, no, we're good. It would be like Moses telling the Israelites it's time to flee Egypt and 90% of them saying, no, we're good. We're good. We're good with our captors. We're good throwing our babies into denial. We're good in captivity. So that's discouraging. You feel like, what are we doing? You feel like Elijah who says, I'm the only one, God. I remember who has a bow but they're discouraged. Most of the Israelites stay in Babylon, most and none of them come back, and the thing, the very foremost in their minds was, how can God accept such a broken people and receive such a broken people and receive such a worship from a broken people? Sure, when we're doing good, God accepts us. So God gave Zechariah a vision of Joshua the high priest. Very interesting scene of what goes on before the throne room of God. All right, we get this vision that Zachariah sees and he writes about. Joshua the high priest. Here we go. And remember, they're feeling not just guilt over what they've done. They've been exiled to Babylon for their disobedience. But shame, too, over not having a place anymore, about not having their roots, about not having their families with them. Like, broken. 
So it opens in a dire situation. Verse one. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, whose name means accuser, standing at the right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And I love this description of the reality of their situation. Because God knows that doesn't put spin on it. He's not he's not talking positive. Here's what he says. He says, Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Yeah, no more ash than substance. More chaff. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And that's why, if you're hearing the story, that's cool, okay. The enemy's accusing, but the Lord's like, the Lord rebuke you, shutting the enemy and the accuser down. He's, yeah, they're in a bad way. When Joshua, the high priest, they represented, or the priest, the high priest, was the one who represented them before God once a year. The one makes sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to cover the people's sins. So there, remember, he had to be pure. He had to be without spot and blush. He had to do sacrifices for himself. Otherwise, going into the Holy of Holies, he'd be struck down in the holiness of God. Where they would, he'd wear nails yep. on the fringe of his garment and tie a rope around because they couldn't go and get him if he died. Man, that is an intense job description. <laughs> really? <laughs> right? <laughs> go in. Hopefully you're good. <laughs> the mountains and the trees and the rocks tremble before the presence of the Lord. Well, you're good. <laughs> and then the people's hearts sink because here's their representative. Filthy. He can't go in. And he is, in a sense, their representative. Because they're, they're filthy as well. Joshua the high priest represents the people before God. Perhaps he was being accused for what Zechariah, if you read Zechariah 1 2, is talking about. And the enemy accuses him and says, What's wrong with this people? You've even sent them a prophet to tell them what's wrong about their sin. This is a prophet who's writing this. Filthy clothes. The idea, again, is excrement covered. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 64 6, our righteousness is a filthy rag. It means menstrual rags. Right. It does. It's the rags that women would use when they're on their period and then they would get rid of them. He's saying, your best before my holiness is this. God doesn't have a high view of our righteousness. (laughs) If there was any hope and holiness to be found in this remnant of the people, it would be the high priest, our representative. The enemy, he will lie to us about God, but to God, he will always tell the truth when he talks about us. And I love God doesn't play it down. He doesn't pretend that it didn't exist. Satan, adversary, prosecutor in Job and in Revelation 12, 10, it says, I heard a voice, a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren, the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Day and night accusing. The prosecutor has really good evidence. Sometimes when trouble or trials happen, he says, God is punishing you. And you deserve this punishment. 
you know your story, you know your history. If you were really repentant, you wouldn't keep doing the same thing. Ugh. Discouragement. Sometimes it comes as you are trying to tell somebody else about Jesus. If they only knew what you were like, you have no right to speak for Jesus, he'll say. Keep your mouth shut. What a poor excuse you are. Keep your mouth shut. Pray? You're going to pray? You don't deserve to have your prayer answered. Why should God listen to you? The heart and how we fail. He says, look at what you've done falling over and over. If you're a real Christian, you wouldn't struggle like this. Crazy temptation. If you're really saved, you wouldn't have these thoughts. And often our own conscience, conscience jumps in as a key witness. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's, I don't even let my own conscience judge me. I let the Lord who sees everything judge me on that day. But we read in 1 John that God is greater than our hearts. Hallelujah. Yeah. God knows what he's choosing. It's no surprise to God who we are. I know exactly who he's choosing. He says, I know their flaws. I picked them. I chose them. I adopted them before the foundation of the world. I knew their name. I know the number of hairs that are on their head. I have ordained the times and the places they should live. If they were not broken and marred, then I wouldn't have come to rescue and to heal them. He says, enemy, I don't expect any different. He's not begrudging you. Okay, let's clean you up. Let's make you presentable. He runs to you. Doesn't even let you get out your whole rehearsed speech. I love it. He says, wear this. Let this cover you. Let's celebrate. Let's feast. He says, this is who I came for. He loves to save and be the raptor of our salvation. It gave God, as Ephesians 1 said, a great pleasure to save you. To choose you, to adopt you. Verse 4 and 5, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. He doesn't say, You have removed your iniquity or have had any part of it. He says, I have removed it. This isn't about what Joshua the high priest has done. This is purely about what Jehovah, my righteousness, has done. This is about what God has done. He doesn't say, Joshua, remove your iniquity. He says, I have removed his iniquity. He doesn't just leave him naked, but covers him from head to toe. He doesn't just take the filthy garments off and put them off somewhere. He doesn't sweep them under the rug, but he saves them for a special day. You have to understand this. And this is why it's so powerful is because God is holy and he has to make a payment for the debt of sin. 
there has to be a price that's paid. Otherwise, it would be unjust. And God cannot be unjust. He's holy. He's consistent with his nature. So as much as he could say, let there be light, he couldn't say, let there be forgiveness. He couldn't sweep it under the rug and say, oh, let's all just get along. Think about if somebody did something horrific to your daughter or your son, and you're in the court of the law, the judge is, you know what? I ate a great breakfast today. I'm just going to let this guy off. We would turn over to the tables in the courtroom and we say, we demand justice. We demand an answer to the wrong. And God is greater than that. His holiness is greater than that. He is justice itself. And to be consistent with his character, he can't take Joshua's garments off and place them somewhere and just pretend like they didn't happen. He reserves them for a special day. And that day was Good Friday on the cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, I'll wear the garments and I'll take the wrath. You all take the justice that they deserved so that they can wear my perfection, my obedience, my righteousness. He provided a righteousness for us. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the unblemished Lamb. Pilate said of him, I find no fault in him. And one of the amazing things about the doctrine of imputed righteousness and doctrine should always lead to doxology or worship if it's good <clears throat> is that Jesus did his, didn't come and give you a clean slate and now you keep up with that clean slate he gave you a whole record from beginning to end you guys have to think out the implications of that that's Crazy. That means that's why there's therefore now no condemnation. Those oh, are yes. Jesus. It's evaporated. Yeah. It's gone. That's why God is greater than our hearts. Yes. That's why the way the Father relates to us is with the same delight, the same excitement. the same exaggerated display of love that he has for the Son. So what's beautiful about wearing the breastplate of righteousness is it says that the Father, the God of God, the uncaused cause, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, adores you and treats you as if you've obeyed like Christ himself. That he doesn't treat you daily and say, oh, you didn't obey today, so I'm going to... I used to think that. I didn't do my devotions, and so that's why my day is hard. That is religion. If you let that sink in, if that goes to the heart, if that enters into the being of your soul, that you have a righteousness that didn't come from your own, and that you are delighted in, adored, celebrated, sang about, held up as a trophy of grace, like nothing but good. I know the thoughts I think to you, towards you, like they're more in number than all the sands of the sea. Like everything he thinks to you, somebody wants to try to figure that out. It's 192,000 thoughts a second. He holds you up and it's good. It's delight. It's celebration. It's crazy to know that like you are secure that's why he says stand in that day yes. the accuser of war says that I die I know them all and thousands more my savior knoweth none 
Like, I know, yes, but Christ and his righteousness. That's why they say on that day when if the question was, it's theoretical, why should I let you into my heaven? You don't say, because I, I accepted Jesus or because I prayed the prayer or because I raised my hand, I went forward, I got baptized. You say, because Christ alone. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. All my strength is Christ. All that I am strength. And what happens is that sinks in like Holy Apostle, he says, man, that gospel is a power. And all of a sudden, there's like a response in you, like light showing on a mirror. A mirror's like, now, I don't know if I should reflect this or not. Is this, let me parse the light part. It's like I have to. And so our righteousness comes from his righteousness. Like our obedience flows because he was obedient to the Father on our behalf. And we have an invincible obedience laid to our account. That's the thing about the purity seminars. Is they're so often saying present to God in purity that he will accept what the kids need to hear. You have an invincible purity that can't be mourned. That can't be shaken. That can't be moved. It's invincible. It's incorruptible. It's been bought and purchased with the blood of Christ himself. His act have proven that it is pure. Yeah. And man, if we started telling our kids the good news, yes. instead of the good news with the claws, it's like, now you... But we're too often fearful then. The grace doesn't mean It changes everything. If you like dynamite, it will go off. It's not a gun. It will shape and change things. So I would say if you are battling and you have two options, you're at the fork in the road. Should I stand in my righteousness in the evil day? Or should I stand in the righteousness in the of Jesus? What breastplate should I put on? I would put on the one that Jesus provides in what he's done and stand in the gospel and his might. What he declares about you is truly true. And then out of response of gratitude where we're not leveraging God on our behalf or using him to get into the circle, but because he has declared before all of creation, you're in the circle. That you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That we get to enter into the joy of the Lord. That because he's declared that because we're already there, we don't have to use good works to try to get in. Now we can just use as an expression of our delight to him. And that is something he loves. That's the good works that Ephesians 2 says that he ordained for us to walk in. He doesn't want it to be burdensome. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Whenever he talks about good works, it's like, come and celebrate in the party. Go tell people. What does he say? It's like a wedding, and we're inviting people to the greatest celebration. Well, that sounds terrible. No! It's amazing. The mission that God, we get to see miracles happen, that he restores the dead, that he brings the dead back to life, that people get saved when you're like dead. They're not going to get saved. They're all just kidding. No, God so reaches down and he calls people out of the tomb. This shapes everything. And how we relate to God, this takes care of shame. Because God says, I love you. 
I know, Joshua, that you're more ash. I know what you've been impacted with, what you've done. That's why I've come for you. I've come to rescue you. I'm not holding anything back. I'm, I'm giving you my all. I've given you my all. And I've given you that, that beautiful, perfect record. So that every day of your worst day, you know that you're delighted. We pray that, like Paul said, Okay, Lord, I, I told him, I gave you this them, this amazing theology. It's going to be pointless and it's going to bounce off the ceiling unless you open the eyes of their heart. To come humbly to scripture and say, Lord, I need you to do this in me. I want to believe this. I, we need community. We need people to gospel. And again, that's a foreign thing because we're an individualistic society, but we need to get comfortable with the fact that like, when I'm down, Tom comes alongside and goes, hey, I just like the good news about Jesus. Yes. It's not over. People say speaking into our lives and us welcoming that and doing that for other people, we don't do this on our own. And as as we think about it, as we pray into our hearts, Eastern meditation is clear your mind, biblical meditation is fill your mind with truth. Very different. We worship the truth in, we sing, we praise, we pray scripture over the Psalms, but not in a way to to use it as a method to unlock the potential or the five power principles. Like it, it's to have God. The whole point of the breastplate of righteousness is I get God unhindered. That's it. That's I, that is, I get Jesus. Like he's made a way where there was no way. He's made me presentable to the Father. I get the family that I've always longed for. Like the focus isn't on us like becoming better but being with Jesus and intimacy with him that's what we've been made for walking with him in the cool of the day and he's very patient and relentless in his pursuit